Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of the Alive Active Shooter Survival Training Podcast. Um, I am uh, here today with my guests, as usual, Ben Gothard, Lawrence Borgens, and Mark Gillespie. Um, and today we are going to talk about something that um, I was a little conflicted about talking about it because it's kind of like I'm uh, any anybody who might be considering pulling off one of these events, uh, you know, they might view this and, and go, oh, that's interesting. That might give me some ideas. But I think it's important that we talk about it uh, and discuss it because it's frankly a little disturbing. So the other night I went to see the new Joker movie. And it, it first of all, it was very dark. It was a little slow. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix played the Joker, phenomenal actor. So that was good, entertaining. Um, but I have to say three quarters of the way through when this thing started to form into what I knew was, what I saw was going to happen, it, it just hit me like a brick in the forehead that this is literally the profile of many of the active killers. And so to not give away too much of the story, let me, let me just kind of snapshot it for you. Um, this guy, uh, Fleck is his name, Arthur Fleck played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, starts out as a probably less than ordinary guy. Um, he's got a job as a professional clown where they send him to do things like uh, dance at children's hospitals and parties and hold signs to have, you know, people come into a business and so forth. He lives with his mother and she's, uh, got some mental illness issues. Uh, so then they take it, they take you through this guy's life, uh, the, the stuff that he deals with. He, he ends up getting beat up while he's holding a sign. Some kids grab the sign, he chases them, they beat him up. He ends up getting fired from his job uh, for the wrong reasons. Um, he f then finds out <clears throat> that he was adopted and the um, man that uh, his mother was dating when he was a child used to beat him horribly. This is not, you know, he doesn't remember any of this stuff. So all of these events happen to this, this guy that, you know, make him feel marginalized, humiliated, beat down, um, embarrassed. Uh, these are all things that we have seen, especially in the younger active killers, where they lose power and control in their lives. And they suddenly get to a breaking point. And that's what happened with our Arthur Fleck. He got to a breaking point. Uh, he was on a subway. He was given a gun by a coworker after he was beaten up the first time. And he was attacked. He's, he's also got a mental illness that he's been dealing with. So that plays a part in it as well, where he, when he becomes super uncomfortable, he laughs uncontrollably. Well, he ends up doing this. These three Wall Street guys uh, decide that they're, they, they think that he's laughing at them. They attack him. He ends up shooting and killing all three of them. He gets away, but then an eyewitness says that somebody dressed as a clown killed these guys. They were the Wall Street guys. Uh, so suddenly it, 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 he gets this following as, you know, the poor uh, underdog who comes back and fights the big, the big Wall Street guys and wins. And now he's made a celebrity. Uh, that is to some degree what our media has done to many of these um active killers in the past 
And so people that are disenfranchised that have no power or control in their lives, they see this and they go, hey, I want that too. I want the notoriety. I want to be feared. I want to I want to take out my wrath on the people that, you know, I blame for taking this power and control away from me. So, you know, by the end of the movie, um, Arthur Fleck, who is now the Joker, um, he, he goes on a talk show as well and kills the talk show. I probably shouldn't be giving all of this away. Anyway, he, he kills the talk show host on live television. The place goes, you know, the city of Gotham goes crazy. Every disenfranchised and anybody who feels like they don't have the power that they should have in their lives, they all, they start a big uh, mob and they're rioting and they end up making this guy a, an absolute hero because of what he's done. And this is so reminiscent of what has happened, the profile and the lives that these people have lived uh, it, now it comes down to their own coping skills. The bottom line is these people, um, they don't, they don't have the coping skills to address these issues, process them in a healthy way and, and grow and evolve and move on and become healthier, normal, um, people in society. And so this is how they decide to take out their wrath. And we have seen in Columbine, um, uh, Elliot Roger in Santa Barbara, Nicholas Cruz in Broward County at Marjorie Stoneman High School, um, uh, Cho at West at Virginia Tech was there was some severe mental illness there, but these are all things that we've seen. So it's the same exact profile. And when I when I realized this, I thought, oh my God! I'm like, you know, somebody out there maybe more than one, maybe multiple are going to see this and do what has happened in the past. And they're going to go, wow, I want that kind of power, that control, that notoriety, that celebrity, that attention. Uh, I want to inflict that fear to make me feel powerful. Somebody is probably going to see this movie and make a manifesto or film themselves talking about it before they carry out one of these attacks and they're going to mention that movie specifically. Um, a lot of the younger guys in high school uh, idolized Eric Harris and Dylan Cleobold that, that, that uh, killed, you know, all the students and the teacher at Columbine in 1999. So it was, I, you know, there's no way to stop this. Freedom of speech, movies are going to be made. Um, it's hard to say whether this was responsible or irresponsible. We can go back as far as um, Rebel Without a Cause with um, uh, James Dean. I'm sure a lot of guys that felt that same way started to emulate James Dean after they saw that movie. Uh, fortunately, that didn't include killing a bunch of people. So the, the outcome wasn't nearly as bad as what's going to happen in this situation. But it struck me as um, sad and, and alarming because you know, I, I would be willing to bet money that this is going to happen. Somebody is going to follow suit. They're going to see this movie. They're going to be inspired by what happened in this movie and go, I want that kind of power. And I want to, I want to, to spread fear and be looked up and looked on as the guy that did this. So unfortunately I was, uh, I was concerned and I'm, and I'm guessing that's probably what's going to happen. I don't have any of you guys seen uh, the movie yet. I have not personally. No. Well, it's 
it's quite a movie. It's very, very dark. And you leave there going, God damn, you know, this is, this is heavy stuff. And, and now, unfortunately, I think in the aftermath, we're going to see, we're going to see that because there will be copycats. There will be guys that see this and, and in, are inspired by it. So I think that's very, very fortunate. Do you think that there are any benefits of this movie coming out? I mean, can we take some of the lessons that we've learned about how uh, a killer actually thinks or, or how they can get to that place where in the beginning, you know, of, of that, that dark and, and twisted journey, maybe they didn't really think they were going to go down that route, but just understanding like these sorts of awful things happening to normal people can turn those people into then awful people. Uh, is, is that helpful to us or can we take anything positive out of that or learn something from it? Yeah, actually, that's a great point, uh, Ben. And I think I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, if we actually, I mean, if we, if we break it down and diagnose this and analyze it and we, and we highlight specifically what you're saying, yeah, we can. And this is what we should be able to take out of it. So one of the things was he was going to counseling and um, he's taking like seven different kinds of psych meds um, and you know, because he's got this condition, he gets really uncomfortable and he starts to laugh uncontrollably, but you can see as he's laughing, he's also very sad. So, so mentally he's sad, but physically he's laughing. It's, it's this nervous tick or whatever that, that comes out of him being really uncomfortable. So he's going to counseling and then whoever funds the counseling, the city, the state, the, the, the federal government, I don't know, they cuts off, they cut off funding. So he ends up then losing his ability to get counseling. I, I think what positive we might be able to take out of this and who knows what would have happened, you know, in the movie, it wouldn't have made a very good movie if he'd have been cured or felt better or the psych meds would have worked. He ended up getting off his psych meds, which people who are diagnosed with psychiatric conditions, oftentimes, unfortunately, something happens like they feel better because the meds are working and then they decide, well, I don't need them anymore. Um, in his case, he lost the funding and therefore lost the prescriptions. So he ended up not being able to take his psych meds anymore. I think if we're going to focus on anything good coming out of this, it would be that uh, preventatively, um, psych psychiatric treatment or just counseling. I mean, not everybody, we know that not everybody that, that perpetrates these acts are mentally ill. They might have emotional issues, m emotional disorders, even like uh, inferiority complex, like, um, like Elliot Roger in Santa Barbara, but um, the counseling may actually help keep, keep them away from that edge. Uh, a lot of these, you know, and, and we, we, we know, and we've talked about on the show that so many of these in incidences are telegraphed long before they happen. They're planned sometimes years Columbine, those two guys planned this for two years prior to actually doing it. Um, so if, if, if we are able to, you know, if they are able to get help, whether it be actual psychiatric therapy and medication or just counseling to help talk them through issues or teach people coping skills, I believe that any one of these people that have pulled this off, except, except for the ideological. Now, 
counseling is not going to help somebody who's an extreme um, a Muslim, an ISIS person that says that anybody who doesn't believe in in Islam should die. That's not going to help. But people who suffer from mental illness, from um, from emotional issues, um, depression. Remember, many of these people are suicidal, which he was uh, initially. Um, you know, if these people can be helped, and even the ones, you know, we, we know that the three uh, reasons people do this are anger and revenge, ideological, and psychiatric. Well, maybe not ideological, but psychiatric and anger and revenge. If these people had coping skills, better coping skills, uh, there's a good chance that many of these could be avoided because they would not seek this type of thing first suicidal, then homicidal, they would not look at that as a, uh, a way to feel better or a way out. Um, and, you know, whenever I think about um, suicide and I think, how could anybody do this? And then I, I always think about, you know, Robin Williams, somebody who I admired for 30 years, probably 35 years, somebody who had everything, an Academy Award, money, admiration, friends, and I think somebody who, who had all of that going for them, but still their demons were so deeply seated and so dark that they thought, if I'm never going to feel good again, if I'm going to have to live in this world of despair and darkness and hopelessness and helplessness, there's just no sense going on. I don't know what might have helped him, but it, it, kind of gives you an insight as to how desperate these people might be to end that. Not everybody, however, is predisposed to that type of thing. You know, they're not going to go out and try and kill a bunch of people. Most people when they're in that situation would just take their own lives to escape the way they're feeling. The ones that, that don't, you know, use drugs or alcohol or whatever addiction to try and satisfy whatever it is that's making them feel that way. Um, but there are people who are who, and I believe it's it's the lack of coping skills or mental illness, uh, like Cho, who was um, paranoid schizophrenic, who would decide, okay, I'm going to take myself out, but I'm going to take a bunch of other people out first because they're they're the reason they blame other people for the reason that they are in that place. I think with better coping skills, they would either not get to that place or not go to that place when they're there and say, okay, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill other people first. So, so as, as like the, the only civilian here, um, uh, you know, obviously y'all have the, the expertise when it comes to the security and, uh, you know, being experts, um, what, as far as tying it back to the Joker, like what should, Obviously, it's theoretical because it's a movie, but like what should the people in the movie have noticed about the Joker or how could they have seen that coming? Like what should they have been looking for? What warning signs could they have seen in the earlier stages of the movie that they could have then taken action uh, based upon to prevent that? If sure, if any. Yeah, no, good point. So, um, you know, a lot of these people like um, um, the kid that carried out the, the Newtown, um, Connecticut killing at, Mar at the, uh, the elementary, they're very isolated. They're loners. And there are oftentimes 
situations where people, they don't have, they're not exposed or people are not exposed to them enough to see the warning signs. Now, his mother, uh, who he killed first, would have seen the, saw the warning signs, but oftentimes a mother's viewpoint of their children is skewed because of their love for their kids. And they may be in denial and they may not want to accept the fact that there's these, all of these, these warning signs and uh, they might deny them, they might ignore them or excuse them. So some of these people, there's very, very few opportunity to see those warning signs. Uh, now, when he went to work, um, in the movie, he worked with several other guys that dressed up as clowns. They had a bullpen and locker room where they all got ready and talked together and so forth. Um, it's very likely that they, in fact, they talked about some of them were uncomfortable with him and some of them, you know, made fun of him. That would have been the place where had they known how to recognize those warning signs, that would have been the place where they would have been recognized. And hopefully there would have been some kind of intervention. But can we can we go over like specifically what those warning signs might be? I know you touched on it a little bit, but I mean this is so critical. If we can recognize this before it happens, I mean that's that's the ultimate prevention yep. tool. Yeah, you're right. That is the ultimate. That is the ultimate way to stop these things is to to head them off at the pass. Well, one scene in the movie, um, after he was given this gun to protect himself, he was carrying the gun with him. He went to a children's hospital and he was dancing and the gun fell out. They, it got back to his employer who, who said, hey, you took a gun to a children's hospital? Um, and he said, well, yeah, but it was, for, it was a prop. So he lied about it. But that would have been certainly a glaring red flag that this guy's got a gun with them. Now, a lot of these people would have seen him as too emotionally, psychologically, and physically weak to ever hurt anybody. However, that's exactly the type of uh, person that would then look for a weapon to do it because they're not physically um, you know, they're not physically able to, you know, hurt somebody with their bare hands. But those are the ones that feel so uh, disenfranchised, marginalized, humiliated, weak. They are going to look for something like a weapon, like a gun, to, to make up for that deficit with their physical abilities. And those are actually the ones that, that we would want to look at and go, well, this guy, you know, he's in a position mentally uh, and not in a position physically to feel bold and empowered and strong enough to take care of himself. So nowadays, and with the training, and I think I speak very specifically about this, and that is recognizing the warning signs of, uh, you know, impending violence by somebody. And I talk about, you know, these specific things. Depression is one of them. Remarks about homicide or hurting other people, hurting themselves, of uh, you know, feeling or acting or or communicating that they're disenfranchised, that they're that they're upset because of where they are in their lives, because of the way they're treated. He was then fired for that, and the guy that gave him the gun had actually said that Fleck, the character, had approached him earlier and asked if he could buy a gun. So he actually set him up. So then he was felt betrayed by a guy that he thought was his friend. Um, certainly when this guy, when a gun fell out of his waistband, 
at work, that would have been a time when if this happened in real life, it should have been addressed and gone, whoa, okay, this sort of thing has happened in the past. And, but, but these people need to know what the profile of an active killer is. That's what our training does. That's what hopefully a lot of other guys like me and us, uh, their training would do. And that's to teach people what these warning signs are. Slides in the presentation are the warning signs and the triggers that trigger people. He, he had all the warning signs. He was contacted by police, which many active killers uh, were contacted by police at some point. Um, he was marginalized. He was beat up. He was made to feel small. All of these warning signs existed. And then we talk about the triggers in the presentation. And this guy definitely was triggered. And that's finally when he went off the deep end. So, you know, to so, your point. So I want to I give a little bit of pushback here from you know, like a, a regular person's perspective, we're all super duper busy and we all have, you know, our own issues that we're dealing with, the things that are on our own minds. And a lot of the time I can speak, you know, from experience, a lot of the time I'm thinking about me. I'm not really thinking about other people. So what's that, what's that shift or, or like, how do we overcome this obstacle of we're thinking about ourselves. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're all always in self-preservation mode, thinking about our own problems. And a lot of the times, frankly, we just don't give a shit about other people. You know, everybody does it, but it's not always that popular to say, but it's just the reality of like human nature. So how do we get out of our, <coughs> excuse me, how do we get out of our own heads enough to pay attention to other people enough to notice these things when most people, 99% of people mostly just focus in on themselves. Yeah. So that's so true. And we are focused on ourselves. And if we don't know what the warning signs are, we we're not going to recognize them. And, you know, you know, in the training, when you say we don't give a shit about other people, that's, it's harsh, but it's true in a lot of situations. In the Alive training, I, I, there's a section when I go into the warning signs and the triggers, and I start take, talking about a personality or behavioral baseline. And I say, when I come to that part, I go, okay, guys, this is where we get a little touchy-feely. And this is where it's time for us to start caring a little bit more about our fellow man. And I say, look, if you're, if you're in a, an employment situation and say there's, you know, there's Valerie and Marjorie work next to each other um, every day for the last three years or in the same, you know, room or same bullpen or same office or whatever, and they know each other's behavioral baseline. And for anybody that doesn't know, you know, the, the term or concept of a baseline, I use the analogy of a heartbeat. A heartbeat, you know, it does this across the, across the line there. And that's the baseline. It, it, this is the highest point it gets. This is the lowest point it gets. And that's when it's normal. When it's out of baseline, it may be going like this and then spike or dip. That's out of baseline. Well, people's behavioral baseline is the same way. If somebody acts pretty much the same way for two or three years, and then suddenly they start behaving out of baseline and they might have like the warning signs we, we do in the presentation are um, outbursts, uh, anger, um, erratic behavior things that are just not part of their normal behavioral profile and baseline. 
that's when oftentimes we will subconsciously go, oh, that's, that's kind of not normal, but just dismiss it and move on. We need to know, and the training teaches us, when somebody starts to get out of baseline and they, instead of just going, well, that was kind of weird, our training kicks in and we go, well, that was kind of odd. And I remember Mike or Lawrence or Mark or any of the other Alive instructors saying in that Alive presentation, giving us a list of all of these behavioral warning signs. And that kind of fits. And, uh, you know, everybody has a bad day. So let's say somebody has a bad day. They got in a fight with their spouse and they come and they're just pissed off or their, their team lost on Sunday and they come to work because they lost 500 bucks on the bet. That's one thing. But when, there's, when it's compounded, when there's one warning sign and then another warning sign and then another warning sign and it persists, it's not just one day. It's one, two, three, four, over and over and over again. And that's when it's time for us to go, mm, gosh, I'm seeing a pattern here. They're out of baseline. I remember what the, the Alive instructor taught us. I need to go talk to somebody or I need to talk to them. And in the training, I say, look, just care enough about your fellow man to get involved. Um, oftentimes, especially in some of the more liberal states, we are taught to just accept everybody for every reason and never question anything. Well, in theory, that's nice because we want all men and women to be created equal and not judge anybody for anything they do or the color of their skin or their sexuality or anything. And that's great. That's fine. And I agree with that. But there's nothing wrong with judging someone's behavior if it fits a profile as possibly being violent or detrimental to the health and welfare of other people or of themselves. And, you know, this applies to people, not just people that we think might be an active killer that's going to hurt other people. It applies to people that it could possibly hurt themselves. And when people are under enough stress, they can, they, everybody's got a breaking point. You know, the personal story that I tell in the, when I do my alive training is when my father died and, you know, I went through a period of about a year, well, really six months at the, at, at the six month mark, I was like, I don't want to move. I don't want to go on with my life. If I'm going to feel this kind of sorrow and depression and the idea that I'm never going to see my dad again, I just, I can't, I can't continue this. Well, thank God. Um, you know, first of all, I'm not predisposed to, to homicide, but there was some pretty dark times when I thought I can't, I can't go on like this, like Robin Williams, who had everything. He just decided if this is the way I'm going to feel for the rest of my life, I'm done. I'm checking out. Well, luckily, um, you know, things started to change. Some time went on. I started to get back to a normal thought process. The despair wasn't, you know, it, it dissipated to some degree. So everybody's got their breaking point. Now, let's say that I was at that point when I was on the edge and some trigger happened that sent me over the edge. Maybe, you know, I was uh, in a relationship at the time, a stable relationship with a woman that I ended up marrying. Um, what if she would have, I would have caught her cheating on me or what if uh, I would have lost my house or let's say I had a child and they, the child was killed or, or arrested for something terrible. People, everybody, everybody's got a breaking point when that, when they just, they can't do it anymore. Some people who are predisposed to actually being in a place where they can't cope enough or talk themselves off the edge or someone else talks them off the edge, they may become suicidal. 
if they blame other people for the things that have happened to them, they may be homicidal first and then suicidal. So to your point, um, we get involved. And in a situation where let's say Marjorie and Valerie work next to each other and Marjorie starts to see Valerie's exhibiting all these signs and she's at a baseline, if Marjorie feels comfortable and is close enough to Valerie because of their relationship, she says, hey, Valerie, do you want to go, go to coffee? Do you want to go grab a drink? Um, I just want to see how you're doing. You seem, you just seem upset. You seem angry. You seem depressed, whatever. And I've told this story in my presentation and, you know, multiple times I've had someone in the audience raise their hand and tell a story where they did that to somebody. They talked to them. They, they, they showed that they cared and just that little bit of empathy or sympathy. They found out later from the person, they said, Hey, look, Literally, that changed the course of my life. It brought me back into a place where I didn't feel so alone and so uh, helpless and hopeless. And I don't know what I would have done if things would have continued that way. Um, now, not every time is Marjorie going to feel comfortable talking to Valerie and saying, hey, can I help? So that's when they go to the supervisor or the manager or HR. And a lot of um, you know, companies, larger companies have EAPs, uh, employee assistance programs, where counseling is just part of that. And so, so Marjorie goes to HR and says, hey, I'm concerned about Valerie. Now, that's their duty to do that, honestly, as a human being and as an employee. They may not want to get involved. They may not want to upset you know, she may not want to have Valerie find out and then say, you threw me under the bus and then make it uncomfortable in the workplace. Well, if we just care enough about our fellow man and we speak up, you know, Valerie might be upset to begin with, but when things start to calm down, she may go, you know, Marjorie did that because she cares about me. And we do it out of authentic caring. We don't do it just because, you know, I don't like the way that person's acting. We do it because we give a shit about our fellow man. If we did a lot more of that, the coping skills would come more naturally. The, the helplessness and despair would be, um, dissipated more by people caring and talking to people. Um, you know, and so I think the point is if we see something, we have to say something. We've got a responsibility to everyone around us and especially to that person that's hurting so bad to try and to intervene and, and see if they can't get that person help. Does that answer your question, Ben? Yes, it does. And what it seems like you're saying is, it's not necessarily like a one-off thing that we need to be as worried about. It's when their default, their baseline of activity or, or behavior radically shifts over a period of time. And we see, wow, this could be a path to significantly less, uh, like just a, a very bad path that they're going down. At that point, it is our obligation like as our responsibility as good citizens of the world to say something either to them, reach out with a helping hand or to reach out to a supervisor or some authority figure to help that other person and make sure that we don't just not say anything and, and stay silent because that could be the difference between somebody either taking their own life or other people's lives. And obviously that's horrendous and, we don't ever want that to happen ever. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, something you said earlier about not, you know, caring about ourselves and, and not saying anything or whatever, it, it does go back to um, if you don't, if you're not taught 
that this type of behavior could equal that type of behavior, you're probably not going to say anything. Um, but, and, and that's what the training does. If, if you don't know that two plus two equals four, you're never going to go, oh, it's four. If you don't know that somebody being out of baseline, having these warning signs, these red flags, and, and you know, it, it building. And remember, violence is not uh, an event. It, it's something that happens over time. It's not just something that happens. This type of active killer stuff doesn't just happen. Uh, the, the Las Vegas shooting with Stephen Paddock is one of the only, that's the exception to the rule. You know, nobody saw this coming, but most of the time there's warning signs. If you see those warning signs and somebody teaches you that that's two, and then you see another two, you know, that's four. Well, before it gets to four, you need to recognize it, say something to them or somebody else and bring it bring it to someone's attention so there can be some intervention. Uh, ben, also, I'd like to jump in for a sec is, uh, I think that one thing that happens with people is when they see a new uh, pattern in a person, they, 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 uh, there's a tendency to sit back and analyze because you're not sure, is this out of baseline or is this a new baseline that I just didn't see before? because I haven't known them long enough or something like that. And uh, Michael's, you know, hit the nail on the head when he says uh, you put the training that you have together with your life experience and uh, this new um, behavior that you see in this person. And when you, uh, you line those up together, now you can see that two plus two equals four. And uh, there's a tendency you know, uh, people just tend to not want to say anything. And, and it's very true, uh, uh, living and growing up in California, it's, uh, you know, you're just supposed to ex accept everybody how they are, even if how they are is, uh, is disruptive. And uh, it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not leading us down a good path in a lot of ways. It uh, opens up issues where, where these incidents can occur. So the other thing you said, Ben, though, is uh, how do you train yourself? You said something, and I'm going back a little bit on things that you said, but you said, how do you train yourself to, to pay attention to these things? And uh, one of the things I'm going to touch on is about situational awareness. And we do cover this in the class and have a, rate, a really great uh, example of that in the class of situational awareness. And so it really, it becomes a habit. Like, so when you pull up to a gas station, I'll, I'll just give you an example. You pull up to a gas station and before you, you know, you pick your pump, you pull up, you park, that sort of thing. Maybe when you're pulling in, you come look around. Are, are, is, do be, does behavior in the gas station in the parking lot look normal? Are people walking in a normal fashion? That sort of thing. You pick your pump, you stop. Uh, before you get out, maybe look at the, uh, at the store itself is you know is does everything look cool over there uh or are people running and ducking uh things like that and so it's it's a matter of training yourself to make a habit of being situationally aware and so the same applies to this example of where you're examining a person's baseline so just just you know have the um the forethought to pay attention to how this person's behaved in the past 
and how they're paying it, how they're behaving now, and take uh, combine that with your life experience plus uh, training you've received from Alive, and that's the um, that's kind of, in my opinion, the answer to your question there. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm glad you brought that up. The situational awareness and and being proactively reactionary that we talk about in the program is so so important and and you know fortunately for people like us who are in the industry who i came up with a father that was former military former law enforcement who was just lived i mean almost to the point of paranoia frankly he was so hyper hyper uh, vigilant um that um there was never an issue and you know the point is not for people to just be constantly security focused that's that's consumes too much of your thoughts and and time. The point is after the training, you see some situations, you're told about scenarios, you see the videos in the presentation, and it's now something that's kind of in your subconscious so that you don't have to constantly, consciously be looking around and aware. For instance, um, I... Uh, I was just somewhere recently and I was just kind of going about, oh, so I was at, um, I was at, the, I was pulling through the Home Depot parking lot and I, and I'm behind this truck and they're going slow out in the far back of the parking lot and they're looking around and just going slow, cutting through slots. I mean, it didn't make any sense. And I'm getting frustrated because I'm trying to get by to go over to the Wiener Schnitzel to get a couple of Chicago dogs, you know, I'm hungry. So, um, so so they park, it's a woman in the, in the passenger seat, a man in the driver's seat. So I, I'm like, I just thought, well, this is odd behavior. I didn't, wasn't thinking about what they're doing. I just thought it was odd. It didn't make sense. It was out of baseline of a normal, normal behavior. So anyway, I went into, uh, I parked my car, I went into to, to get my food, but I looked out the window and now they're sitting in their vehicle kind of in the middle, but at the back of the parking lot, not doing anything. So I'm like, okay whatever. So I order my food. I walk out. I sit down. I'm waiting for my food. I'm watching. And then the guy gets out. The woman stays in the truck. The guy gets out and he's just kind of looking around, which as soon as I see somebody looking around, that just triggers a suspicion in me because it's what are they looking for? Who do they not want to see them? And what are they going to do that they don't want people to see? So I'm watching this guy and I'm still not really, I mean, there's no overt you know, expressions of danger or any major situation. Well, um, so I get my food, I'm eating. Finally, I, I go out to my car and the guy now has gone to the very back of the parking lot and is sitting on one of the rows of flatbed trailers that Home Depot sells. And he's just sitting there doing nothing, just sitting on this thing. The woman is still in the truck and I did notice when I was behind the truck, they've got a brand new trailer hitch on it. Brand new silver ball. Doesn't look like it had ever been used before. That did not register consciously with me until I started putting two and two together. It appeared to me that this guy was sitting there waiting for an opportunity to back that truck. And by the way, it was hot. And this woman's in the truck. It's running. She's got the windows up with the air on. And he's sitting 30 or 40 feet away on this flatbed, flatbed. And I'm thinking, okay, I put two and two together. I watch him for a little bit 
and I pull away. And as I'm pulling away, I drive by him and I'm kind of eyeballing him trying to figure out what is it really you're up to. So then this guy locks eyes with me and he starts mad dogging me. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy, he's already on the defensive. He, he knows he's up to no good. Something's going on. So I just went over into Home Depot and I told a couple of people and they sent a couple of people out there to eyeball it and said, yeah, there's, this is not right. There's something wrong, but they're not going to go confront anybody. That's not their job. They're Home Depot people. They sell hardware. They go back in and call the cops. Well, I didn't stick around, but that was a situation where I, I was not consciously aware or thinking there's what is going to happen. I just noticed some behavior. There's behaviors that were out of baseline. It didn't make sense. And it wasn't, you know, it was one thing going slow in the parking lot, cutting through slots. I mean, really slow blocking me for no reason. I thought, okay, they're looking for the perfect spot, but then I go in and it was the two plus two plus two plus two that added up to, they are definitely up to no good. And that's why I let them know. So it's not a matter of just always consciously being hypervigilant and, and being paranoid. It's just a matter of once you're trained to be situationally aware, and we talk about defaulting to your level of training, like the Heimlich maneuver or doing CPR 15 years after you were taught it in, in first aid class and, and never thought about it again since. In times of stress and situations, you will oftentimes default to your training. That's why this training is so damned important. It helps you, it gives you the knowledge that will be stored back here in this amazing hard drive that when you need it, hopefully you'll, you'll, your body and your brain will pick up on it without you consciously even seeing it or, or acknowledging it. And then when two plus two happens, you're like, wait a minute. And you're ready to, to act to avert, you know, four <laughs> for, to use the analogy we're using. Mark, what do you think about all this stuff? Well, you brought up some good points. I think culturally, we're it, it's with all the political correctness and all the stuff our society has been facing over the past ten to fifteen years. You know, mind our own business, keep things to ourselves. Every day, we're 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 fighting an uphill battle. Uh, so, with this training, you know, and the beauty of this training is to is to show people, teach people to go against the grain. If they see something, say something. Um, you know, it, a lot of times people think, well, if you, you know, you're going to be a snitch, you're going to say something and you're going to get in trouble or going to piss someone off. Well, you know what? All that could save someone's life. So I think the more we can get in front of people and teach people, you know, to be situationally aware, see something, say something, it may be uncomfortable, but I'd rather be uncomfortable knowing that I saved someone's life than, you know, be uncomfortable and not say anything at all and then find out, you know, tragedy struck. Uh, I think that's one thing that's beautiful about this training is, is it's like a paradigm shift. It's, we're, we're teaching people different behavior. And yeah. uh, I, I think it just needs to continue to multiply in our society. Yeah, um, just 100%. like what you described with the Home Depot, Home Depot scenario. Totally, totally correct. And the perfect analogy that we use in the training is after the the San Bernardino shooting, where the the man, the husband and wife, um, they were extreme um, Muslims, um, ISIS, whatever. Uh, they go into the government building in San Bernardino, 
and they shoot up, you know, they kill 14 people and the FBI interviewed their neighbors because they lived, you know, not far from there. They interviewed their neighbors and said, Hey, did you see, did you see any behavior or anything going on that you thought was alarming? And they said, yeah, absolutely. We saw this and we saw that and we thought, wow, that's really this. And oh my God. And they said, well, why the hell didn't you say something? And the response was, we didn't want anyone to think that we were racist because they were Middle Eastern and they were Muslim. So because of political correctness, the, and by the way, who cares if they're Muslim and who cares if they're Middle Eastern? It's the behavior that it is perfectly okay to judge. And no matter what you look like or what you believe in, wonderful, knock yourself out. But when you, when you see behavior that is alarming, that is when you have got a duty, a responsibility to speak out, to get some attention. And they were already on the FBI's radar. If any one of those neighbors would have contacted the FBI, the FBI would have intensified their surveillance. They would have probably seen what was going on, maybe tapped their phones, whatever, figured out you know, what was brewing and possibly averted that. But because they were politically correct, that didn't happen. Now you talked about a paradigm shift in culture. And you guys know that I kind of go out on a limb here and, you know, possibly make myself the fool if I'm wrong, but I believe strongly enough about this to be vocal and say it publicly. I believe that if, if we do what I think we should do to shift the paradigm and, and shift the culture, we will be able to start to decrease these events and decrease the body counts um, away from the current trend, which is they're happening more often and more people are dying per incident. There's a, there's a saying culture trumps personality. And the, the great best illustration for that is when somebody walks into a public library and they are loud and obnoxious and, or just loud, if they don't whisper or they're just talking very loudly and they're very animated and they're, they're very distracting to people. The, the, the kind of the old adage or that what people is everyone will go shh, right? In a library. It's like the culture in a library is to speak softly or be quiet so as not to disturb the other people in the library. Now, that, that one problem child has a decision to make and he's got two options. He can adhere to the culture or rather he can not adhere to the culture and the culture will attack him metaphorically, uh, push him out or whatever, but he will not fit in that culture and the culture then can react to, to solve that problem. Or he will adhere to that culture and become a member of that culture. When we change the culture, our culture and our way of thinking, so that we're not so concerned with political correctness when it comes to someone's behavior, if it's alarming and we think it could be violent, when we just like you don't yell bomb in an airplane or fire in a movie theater, that's not, that's not culturally acceptable when it's not culturally acceptable for somebody to make empty threats. And it's becoming that way. Now the high school down the street from me, somebody scribbled on the, in, on a bathroom stall wall, something about shooting up the school. Somebody saw it. They reported it. It went into lockdown and an, a massive law enforcement investigation began. That is where we need to get, at every turn. We, you do not say things like that. You know better than to, to yell bomb on an airplane. The only ones that will still do that are the ones that actually intend to do that. So we will know 
bam, that person has got to be taken seriously and dealt with however is necessary to avert the situation. The second part that I talk about um, being the solution is using physical security apparatus. And that doesn't necessarily mean magnetometers at, at every school. It means um, security at a school, armed security or armed teachers, if they are qualified and experienced and trained. No, I do not believe, and I get this question all the time, I do not believe that every teacher should have a gun. I believe that any person who is willing, able, knowledgeable, experienced, trained, and practiced who will use the gun efficiently, effectively, and responsibly, if they choose to have a gun for protection, then I believe whether it's a, an airline pilot or, um, or a teacher or anybody else, maybe a doctor or even a nurse, if they choose and are qualified to have a, a firearm, and people know that it is going to curb these. Now, I think it's Hennepaw, Kennepaw, Georgia, outside of Atlanta. I've mentioned this before on the show. They have a city ordinance that if you own a home, you have got to have a gun for self-protection in that home. Do you know how many home invasion robberies they have there? Zero. When these killers choose a target, they will look for a target where they have the best opportunity of success in killing as many people possible in a short amount of time as possible. If we have enhanced security, physical security apparatus, if we have a culture of we're not going to put up with that and the people that do this are freaking cowards, they're not heroes, they're not celebrities, they're, they're worse than the than the minimalized people that they were before they carried something like this out, which is the reason oftentimes they do that. If we take the incentive for them to do this, which is to feel power and control and spread fear and be ominous and a celebrity, if that is no longer the case, we're going to take away the incentive to do it. So, so Mark, to your point, I believe there is the possibility and probability of of a paradigm shift. The only problem is we are fighting against the ideology that everyone should be accepted for every reason. We're fighting against the ideology that guns are the problem and guns are bad and so nobody should have guns, which we know doesn't work. Nobody should have drugs, but drugs are an epidemic in this country, illegal drugs and unfortunately opiates, it's prescribed. Um, we, we, we have to fight against the ideology that um, it's wrong to say something because somebody acts a little differently. Those are all cultures, that, that those are all part of the culture that has to become the culture. And the culture by definition is when a group of people think and act similarly or in alignment. So I believe it'll happen one day, but the the sad thing is it's going to take a lot it's going to take more of these killings for us to be able to prove the point to the to the people that don't believe in the what i'm talking about to go okay well being nice and sweet and having no gun zones and all of this other stuff hasn't worked let's try what these bad guys are saying about how to actually stop these things and i believe that is what will make the difference Um, so anyway, that, you know, again, circling back to our, our main point, uh, unfortunately, 
and, and look, it is what it is. We're not going to stop violent movies. We're not going to stop violent video games. You know, um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, uh, who wrote On Killing, On Combat, um, Assassination Generation, uh, he speaks all over the world, probably the most well-known speaker to law enforcement and military on the on on the the psychology of killing and what happens to your body physiologically um, when you get into a shooting. That's why he talks about law enforcement, talks to law enforcement. You know, he, he, he believes that the, these violent movies and violent video games are, are the biggest contributor to why young people are doing these things. And uh, you know, he may be right, but unfortunately it's not going to change. It's not going to change. As long as violent, as long as movies like Joker makes a lot of money, um, they're going to exist. And so people are going to see, and by the way, um, clearly this is already an issue because uh, we were hired to provide security for movie theaters uh, during the weekend of the debut of the movie Joker because it goes back to the 2012 uh, Aurora, um, Aurora, Colorado theater shooting by James Holmes when he walked in to a midnight premiere showing of uh, Batman the Dark Knight because the Joker was a prolific um, character in that movie. And he went in dressed like the Joker. He had the makeup and the hair and everything else. So um, all over the country, uh, security was heightened during the, during the premiere of this movie. So somebody's going to see this movie and some coward, and I'm going to make sure to attach the negative connotation to this. So if anyone sees this, you are a fucking coward. You are not a hero. You're not a celebrity. You are somebody who was too weak to cope with your own issues. And so you chose to take it out on people, other people, rather than dealing with yourself responsibly. Somebody is going to see this and they are going to go, I want that kind of power in my life. Because the guy rose from nothingness to celebrity, to having all that power and control. So uh, I think it's going to be a matter of time before that, before we see that materialize in a, in a manifesto or a video after after the fact that this has happened. Michael, uh, take a minute and tell us about some of the uh, training options for getting a live training. So thank you, Lawrence. Um, the Alive Active Shooter Survival Training Program, which is now many years old, has been taught around the world, who actually has students that have survived shootings because of it. Uh, it, it is taught in person by myself and a handful of other instructors like yourselves. Um, all over the country. Um, it is, uh, for the most part, a, between a two and three hour in-person training. Um, unfortunately, not everybody can see it and not every employer is going to hire us to teach their employees. So we've created the online program, which is based on a video of uh, one of my presentations. So every anybody can see basically my online presentation, excuse me, my in-person uh, uh, presentation from their computer, but of course the online is enhanced with uh, some surveys, some download, downloadable content, um, a final exam and a certificate uh, for the comprehensive course, which is, that's the three hour online course. There were people who couldn't sit in for three hours or HR and risk managers who said, I can't get my people off the, the assembly line or off the manufacturing floor or out of their offices. Uh, or tied up for three hours. So I created a, the accelerated version, which is about an hour. So you can now learn the essential five steps of Alive um, in an hour online from any computer anywhere in the world that has um, 
has uh, Wi-Fi or has internet access. Um, and, uh, and then the book right here, um, 10 minutes to live, I realized that I'm not going to be able to get uh, the training out to everybody, whether it be in person or online. So I wrote the book and the book is a, a survival manual. It is all of the things in the alive uh, online and in person. And then some uh, in, in the book, uh, the book has sold very well and, and gotten really, really good reviews. And it's written very simply, just like a conversation. And I've had parents have their young teenagers read it, uh, even tweens and tell me that the, they believe that it was valuable for, uh, for their kids. And then, of course, go to get that information. Pardon me. Oh, thank you, Lawrence. So anybody looking for any information on the, on any form of training can just go to active shooter survival training.com. Um, pretty easy to remember active shooter survival training.com and go to the training and education. And also we've got the, um, uh, cer certified instructor course where you can become after a two day intensive training course, you can become an alive, um, instructor, um, get paid. A lot of the guys that want to do that, like yourselves, have your own security or investigations business, have some training experience and their clients want active shooter survival training. So, uh, they can, they can promote and teach that as their in-house course. It is still the alive course, which is trademarked and, and widely known as a very good course. So they can use that as a, um, something to, to, um, it's a profit center. Obviously it's, it costs money, but they can use that as their in-house active shooter training uh, program. So active shooter survival training.com is where you can get all the information. And um, we will continue to do these podcasts uh, to break down these events, to talk about the alive pro the alive steps to help empower people. This, this program is about empowering people. And, and there's so many run, hide, fight, copy, you know, copycats out there and that's okay. Run, hide, fight was just fine. It, if that's all you ever know, that's better than knowing nothing. So I'm not saying it's bad training. It's just not as good as it could be. And most guys who have training like this, it's all based on the run, hide, fight. This one just, I believe is superior because after all the, everybody else's courses that I took, I thought some of them had, they weren't perfect, so I wanted to create the, the best one, and so I created a live. So, um, so we will continue to teach this and have this podcast and train people. Uh, anybody that would like to um, hear or see anything specific, please email support at aliveactiveshooter.com, and um, we'll have some discussions um, last time we had this, it was on October 1st and we brought in somebody, an eyewitness, somebody was actually at the 91, uh, route 91 music festival in Las Vegas. That was a very, very, um, heavy, impactful and emotional, uh, um, show for, for all of us. I, I think everybody was kind of touched by that one to hear, uh, an eyewitness, um, perspective of that of that event. So we will continue to do that and bring awareness to the masses so that we can change that we can shift the paradigm. Like Mark said, we can, we can improve our culture so that we can start to eliminate or decrease these events um, from happening. Anybody have anything else? All right, gentlemen. Well, as usual, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks to everybody who's watching. Again, get a hold of us if you've got anything you want us to speak about um, specifically. 
and we will continue doing what we do to get this, this knowledge out to everybody. So until next time, I hope everyone will stay safe and I thank everybody for being involved in uh, our program. Take care.